Hi, and welcome to Bread. As the year comes to a close, we're celebrating Advent, that part of the church's calendar where we look forward to and prepare for Jesus's birth. Over these next weeks, allow yourself to be still. Hear again the wonderful news of Christmas and have Jesus meet you with all his hope, joy, peace, and love. My name's Hannah. I haven't been up here for ages, actually. I don't think I've spoken um, in here since we moved back in here, so it's really nice to be back here. Um, We are doing the Advent thing this year. We don't always do it. In fact, I think it's the first time we've done it in terms of sticking to the themes of the Sundays in Advent, um, as modelled by the Advent candles up there, which belong to the Adventists. Um, And I have a funny relationship with things like this in the church, this sort of church calendar, the kind of sense that you're supposed to do things on certain days. Um, Or I have historically anyway. I wasn't wasn't raised in this sort of church tradition. And so it's come to it for me from a perspective of needing to understand why we do it this way. Um, But actually, I have to say, this being our seventh year um, here doing this church thing, I am increasingly finding myself to really enjoy the tradition of the thing and the the ritual of the thing and the meaning behind the thing, which may, of course, just be to do with aging, because apparently that's what happens as you get old. Um, uh, But so it's peace this week. I kind of love the idea as well of of the sense of churches all over the world meditating on the same concept. But it's peace, we're doing peace. Um, But if you didn't grow up in a church tradition that did the Advent thing, I will explain it to you a little bit now. It's about waiting. It's about joining with um, the ancient Hebrews in their experience and their anticipation of what was coming and in in the waiting for the Messiah. Um, And I think that probably um, there aren't many of... If I were to do a straw poll of, like, who has had an experience in here of waiting being difficult, I think we would all have a story of something that we've had to wait for that's really, really sucked. Um, And I am not belittling the pain of those experiences in any way. But I do want to start with just making a significant point that our understanding of waiting um, is very, very, very different to what it was like for the Jews waiting for their Messiah. Different on a number of levels, but specifically on the sheer timeline of it. Um, So... I've I've made some timelines, or actually Raoul made me some timelines. Um, Can I have the first timeline? That is the first one, yep. So this is the basic thing of the history of the peoples. 2,000 years, roughly, from when God called Abraham, told him what was going to happen, the promises he made him about making his name go through his descendants, um, and then to when Jesus Jesus returned. Um, And so it was all a lot of waiting. There was this period of prosperity in the land in the middle for about 300 years. But prior to that, they were waiting to get to the land. And after that, we talked quite a lot about the exile, 
what happened when they sort of disobeyed and, and lost the favor of God, lost the land. And we're going to just zoom into that for a minute because we talk a lot about it. We talk a lot about it because it's an era when an enormous amount changed for them. And um, things like because they lost the temple, they had to start writing things down. That's why so much of our, what we understand of their faith, of their stories, is from that era of time when they were sent out. Um, into different lands. It's so many of the myths or absorptions of the myths of those people and stories about what God is like in response to what their gods were like. But what I want to look at is just a little bit in between the exile and Jesus, because it's not a little bit. We talk about it like it's a little bit. It's really not. In our Bible, it's the turn of the page, um, but it was about 450 years. So um, there's this guy, Cyrus, who takes over from the Assyrians who have, that empire has, has, has forced the Jews out um, and has kept them as slaves and actually lots of them assimilated into that culture. And then Cyrus takes over and he is prophesied prior to that to the Israelites um, as being um, someone who will come and let them go back. But here's, here's what I want us to get because this is where it gets sort of complicated. They didn't all agree on what going back looked like and going back didn't look like what going back should have looked like. Um, some didn't go back. Some didn't believe that Sirius was the answer at all. Um, and so that for this 450 years or so, there are some prophets for a while, but for the vast majority of it, I think Malachi was the last one, and that was something like 350 years before Jesus. For the vast majority of it, they're not hearing anything. They haven't got unity. The temple is a complicated thing because it's in a land that is owned by other people. It's constantly, it was um, the Persians, really interesting empire, if you're ever interested. I've got a brilliant book on the Persians that is, I just found a fascinating era, who were then Alexander the Great, and the Greeks took over from them. Um, and that's the era when, um, if you've heard of the Maccabee um, revolt, revolt, well, that was a couple of hundred years later, but the, the Greeks was, was in charge in that land for a really long time. And then, of course, Rome. And so for a lot of it, some of them are in the land, lots of them are spread out, lots of them have decided that they're going to sort of not do the temple thing anymore, they're going to do the synagogue thing and the Torah thing and do, have these sort of houses together in their local areas. The question about the centrality of the land isn't something that anyone agrees on anymore. And the main thing that's the issue here is that nobody knows when this promised Messiah is going to come. And so Pompey's there, he's the... Um, the Roman leader who gets to Jerusalem in, in 63 AD. And he um, has heard about this temple. I've got a picture of the second temple. I just thought I'd show you it. The temple, in case you, don't, you know, haven't heard us teaching other things before, this is, this is historically in terms of what God said to about how, how they are to worship him, how they are to follow him. The temple is key to everything. The place in the middle there is the Holy of Holies. There's different places where different people can go. The Holy of Holies is the place where only the priest can go only once a year, and he has to have a rope tied around his neck because that's where God's presence resides in case God's presence kills him so they can pull the priest out because it's such a thing of awe. The temple represents the universe. It represents all that is sacred in, in the Jewish people's understanding of their relationship with God. And Pompey, in 63 AD, take... Hmm? BC, thanks babe, um, uh, takes Jerusalem and is curious about this and he just walks in to the Holy of Holies and he's really surprised it's not as um, beautiful or impressive or 
I think he was the, said that he was expecting to have loads of fattened Greeks in there ready for sacrifice, but there's nothing in there apart from a stone block. But what he has done, again, is completely desecrate this space for the Jewish people. And so he leaves, and a few years later he dies, and it's this sense of, like, it, it, he must be the one that's prophesied that, that is coming to desecrate us again. It's coming. The Messiah is coming. It's, it's, when is it? When is it? But we can't really think, I don't think, what 450 years of waiting collectively on, on this level of identity actually meant to a people. Um, what they do know of this um, Messiah is what we will look at. And what we actually look loads of stuff from the Christmas stories about, this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace, this greatness of a government and peace that will have no end. And this is what they have been asking. This is what the people in, in our story that we're so familiar with have been asking. It is their identity to be asking, when, O oh Lord, are you coming for us? And we'll, we'll get into this, but the, the obvious sense of it was this, the greatness of this Messiah who was going to lay ruin to Israel's enemies and slay the wicked um, and punish the adulterers, adulterous, idolatrous, sorry. Um, and so, here we are with these two characters in Luke 1. Um, this priestly couple called Elizabeth and Zechariah. Um, I'm sure we know their story. Um, they are old in age and unable to conceive. And one particular night, Zechariah has been chosen by Lot for an important role in the temple, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense just outside the holies, Holy of Holies where he encounters an angel, an angel who tells him that his prayer has been heard and his wife um, will have a son, which is huge news. But there's a lot more to this huge news because this son is going to be filled with the Spirit before he is born, and he's going to bring back um, the people of Israel. He's going to be a prophet, which they haven't had for a really long time, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it's a really interesting thing to note before Andre comes up and actually reads our reading, is that um, Zechariah is the only player in the whole of the Christmas story who is a priest. As everybody else, the criminal outcast shepherds, the Zoroastrian occult practicing um, wise men from the east, uh, Elizabeth, Mary, the women, Joseph, who's a commoner. There is nobody else in the priestly expected class who you'd, 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 they would have thought would be involved in this arrival. Um, and all of those players follow the messages that they're given with faith. And it's Zechariah who um, doesn't. He questions the angel. He kind of goes, surely, how, how can we have a baby? My wife's too old. A mistake which earns him nine months of, of silence. It's like the gospel was always there to um, shame, shame the, what's the expression? I'm really sorry, my brain, I just need to, I'm, I'm, I'm a little unwell this morning and it feels like I'm in a cloud in my head. Um, foolish things to shame the wise, there we go. Andre, come and read to us, <laughs> rescue us from this for one moment. I'm going to hold this for you and do this stand, yeah. Uh, reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1. 
John the Baptist is born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All of the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hills of, Jude of the country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to, this pe to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David, as he had said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Thank you. So the sentiment would have been, finally. It's finally happening, people of Israel. This miraculous baby, this prophet is here. And it means that the Messiah is coming. We can truly believe this now. I don't think we can really underestimate how good this good news was. N.T. Wright translates those last four lines like this. The heart of our God is full of mercy. His daylight has dawned from on high, bringing light to the dark as we sit in death's shadow, guiding our feet in the path of peace. More than four centuries in silence, disunity, in groaning, yearning, waiting, invader after invader, with all their foreign gods and immoral practices and intentional desecration of our most holy thing. Now, there will be rule for us. It's time. Here comes our God. And of all the things they knew about the Savior, that he would be um, born in David's line, born in Bethlehem, Zechariah touches on a, on a couple of the central themes about what they know in some of these verses, that he'd rescue them from their enemies, guide their feet in the path of peace. In fact, the phrase um, in the Hebrew for when the Messiah comes um, is totally synonymous for the idea of when peace comes. And of course, we know um, in Isaiah's famous prophecy that we hear a lot this time of year, um, that his name, the Prince of Peace, would have been, surely been in their minds. It was foretold that the Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom, 
would come to Jerusalem with the very wisdom of God and would teach the way of God to the nations, would teach them the way of peace. Shalom, this beautiful, wide-ranging Hebrew concept that means actually so much more than peace in our language. It depicts the bringing together of God and humans and all of creation. It depicts total justice, total fulfillment, the welfare of everyone, prosperity, tranquility, and delight. And it has this sense that all natural needs are satisfied, all natural gifts are fruitfully employed. All of creation working together in harmony, just like it was in Eden. So just as a matter of logic, surveying the scene that was in front of a first century Jew, it is going to take a massive level of power to put this in place. The Latin word for peace is Pax, and actually this was a very special era of it um, in the Roman Empire known as Pax Romana, um, which was this 200-year era, era that began with Caesar Augustus, who'd been in power for, uh, I think, 25 years before Jesus was born, um, and, and lasted 175 years after that. Um, and it was an era during which trade flourished, cities prospered, many of the empire's famous roads and aqueducts and amphitheaters and all these things were built in that time. Um, and Pax to the Romans simply meant a cessation of hostilities between the conqueror and the vanquished. Um, but Augustus's rise to power, um, or as Octavian, as he was known previously, um, was, as you would imagine, anything but peaceful. Um, it was brutal, it was treacherous, and it was dramatic. And it, this period of peace depended on and relied um, power to keep the peace. It required a powerful emperor sitting in charge of his senate, governors governing, regions being carefully managed, and the people submitted. And I think that we can sometimes get a bit caught up in um, a simple feeling of maybe blame when we think about how the Jews um, were expecting a different kind of messiah. Um, it's perfectly obvious Jesus was saying he was something else, but it was, it was completely natural for them to expect that their Messiah would come with power. Um, that, that that's how he would do it, because I just, I don't really, how else would he do it? They were expecting that he'd ride to, this, to Mount Moriah where the temple sits, and he would take charge. What well, they could not possibly have known was that this Prince of Peace wasn't coming back for his town, for his temple, or in any way to settle the score in Jerusalem. He was coming back to settle the score in the cosmos. The peace that he came to bring is the peace with God that we all have as reconciled as his children. That's what he was coming to do. No more need for the law and the kosher and the temple and the priests and the once a year atonement. No more separation. We are at peace with God because we always will be. Which is a thing that I think, because it's been our, the only state we've ever known, that I think is important, if we think of nothing else today, to just remember. You can never, ever do anything about the fact that you are at peace with God and he is at peace with you. But if we go further into Jesus' message of peace, it does start to get quite a lot more complicated. He absolutely, we're going to look at a few of the times he says, I'm giving you my peace, I leave you my peace, 
And Paul describes it as surpassing all understanding, this perfect peace that he gives us. But also, if we just look around us, we know that that hasn't fully happened. And these, um, actually the promise of peace that he gave us is directly contradicted by Jesus himself or something he says in both uh, Luke 12 and somewhere in Matthew as well. When um, he's talking about what it's going to be like for them, he says in Luke 12, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against other, three against two and two against three. quite an important point just on this one that it's certainly not understood that that was Jesus' instruction it was just a sense of inevitability he knew that what he was coming to do and to say would cause division it's inevitable nothing in life death or resurrection of Jesus should leave us in any doubt that he did not come to cause division he was just saying we are peaceless in our old nature and conflict, aggression, and violence will be an inevitable feature of life on this earth until he returns. The question that we face, you and I, is what are we to do about that? The 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes famously said that in the state of nature that life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and that his natural bent towards violence can only be curbed by a strong state to maintain the rule of law. And from him, without stopping, political theorists and philosophers have tried to sort of have argued about whether or that's true and worked out what we should do and how we should govern and how we should rule in a way that takes into account our human nature and, you know, what the best way for the best number of people could possibly look like. I mean, I think we sort of, we're seeing that still being worked out today, aren't we? But quite interestingly, <clears throat> since the 1970s, there's been this more development in thought around a conversation between philosophers, anthropologists, archaeologists, psychologists, and biologists even, around whether or not we are as human beings in our very nature driven towards conflict and violence. And you could, I mean, this, this is a massive conversation, but you could take some evidence of our evolved bodies, um, such as our buttressed fist, no other ape can do that. Apparently, many believe that we, that we developed that skill because we needed to fight. Um, and apparently, the, well, they would claim that the brow of the male, the brow and the chin of the male, the biological male of our species are bigger because they're more likely to fight and they need to be to withstand a punch. There are those who fiercely disagree with this argument um, that, and they would say that any violence in mankind is culturally learnt. Anthropologists would take you towards something like 70 societies who have no history of uh, war um, and have very active peacemaking practices. The uh, nature-nurture aspect of this debate is ironically one of fierce conflict. But I was um, struck by something I read by Harvard professor Steven Pinker this week who actually shaped the conversation around this enormously in more recent years who absolutely agrees that the human body and brain shows, design, um, shows signs of design of aggression, but that we have changed dramatically since our early days. Um, incredibly, archaeological evidence shows that non-state societies, um, early, early non-state societies, around 15% of the whole population died in war and violence, sort of universally, wherever they had been dug up. 15%. 
Um, and whereas today states um, it's a few hundredths of a percent. In fact, he calculates that even in the 20th century, even given the two world wars and multiple genocides, that there was still only something like 0.7% of the world's population died to violence and war. Which is quite a thought, isn't it? This is a quite incredible claim, given everything that's happening in the world. And I say this with no irony. We have in our congregation a, Ura a Ukrainian and an Iranian. Like, there's no way that we can even, within these rooms, believe that, I don't know, that things are getting much better. But it is true by those numbers that we live in the most peaceful era of our species' existence. And Pinker would argue that um, we've learned to inhibit our natural impulses and that we've learned to do things like anticipate the long-term consequences and anticipate and care about the feelings of others, um, which is a, you know, a culturally absorbed thing that we've done. And I, it's, it's compelling, actually. If you take the idea of spanking, um, I'm, I'm going to say spanking for your sake, but you should know that spanking uh, to a Brit has a sexual connotation. We say smacking, but I will bear with you and just say spanking for now. Um, you would never spank a child in England. Um, but hands up, who, who was spanked as a child? Wow. Wow. So this hadn't come up for Ed and I, um, and I was very heavily pregnant with our second daughter when and our oldest daughter was nearly two and I was changing we just had never discussed whether or not we'd do it I think I probably thought we would because our parents did it um, and she, so, so she's just getting into the twos the sort of real um, it's the process of individuation but really working out you know, the cause and effect of things and what causes a reaction and I'm standing changing her diaper with a big big belly and she, for the effect of it, starts kicking me harder and harder, and I'm trying to get her to stop, and I'm pinning her down, and I don't know what to do because I'm halfway through the diaper, and it's not kind of an option to leave her there. And I tell her that if she does it again, I'm going to smack her. Um, and she does it again even harder, so I smack her, and all of a sudden, it's the only time we have ever done the smacking of the children. Um, it just is the most... The logic of teaching your child to not be violent by being violent. That, like, we are, I don't think any of us can um, disagree that we are, we're changing how we think about certain things at a very, very rapid rate. However, you take it to a, a greater level and what we see, I think, with politics and belief systems, I think there is also pretty intense evidence that we may have gone as far as we can go in terms of a belief that things are going to get better if we just figure it out a bit more. I've been really, really struck in the last several months listening to friends and family that I have on both extremes of the political spectrum, really quite far extremes of the political spectrum. And I have heard from both sides that there is a deep fear that the other one is capable of and potentially plotting violence. I mean, there's, there's this sense that, I don't know, something's coming or whatever it is, but that this cannot be evolved humans working peacefully together, working effectively, if this is where we are in this moment. So what does Jesus say about the peace that we are given, if that's what he doesn't say about it? In John 16, 
he says to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, in me you have peace. Jesus' peace is then absolutely not a promise of no conflict. We're not promised that. Jesus' peace has nothing to do with the ebb and flow of our circumstances. Jesus' peace is definitely not just a feeling, although it's definitely something we do feel. And it's not the same as the absence of threat. We can't find peace by eliminating threat. We can't find it by achieving higher status. We can't achieve it by getting more security or more enlightened as a species. We can improve, but we cannot solve the problem. Peace comes from a person because peace is a person. Peace is Jesus. And so we need to look at his life to see how it works. And we need to bask in his presence to see what it feels like. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I definitely post the sort of 14 month hiatus of not being able to meet, I'm so, so aware of the peace that I receive in worship. And we have, I'm, as you're aware, incredibly talented musicians and worship leaders on our team. But I look forward to it every week, the experience of singing together, singing about Jesus and receiving his peace, no matter what is going on. I have now come to expect that I will feel more peaceful, I will feel better. I will experience more shalom when I am worshipping Jesus. And this peace can only come when we know that we are loved, as Jesus did, when we know that we are valued, as Jesus did, when we know how intrinsic we are to his plans. The aspect of shalom, of all the things that I read out earlier, that has really been staying with me recently is the... Um, how important it is to it that we're all fruitfully and gainfully employed within it, and why I think it is so difficult if um, you're out of work, you're waiting for work, you feel underappreciated at work, or actually, which I think is for a lot of young people, if you don't know what your work is, is finding peace can be very, very difficult. And yet he says, come to me and I will give you peace. He will give us peace and we will take it to the world. We will be a people who understand this so core to our beings that we can take it out there. We can be a people who don't need the last word, who don't need to be right, who don't need to get payback. Of all of the um, Martin Luther King things I could have read this morning about peace. The story of his that I think of most often in my life um, is one that he told, I think, in the early 60s about um, driving at night with his brother and nobody dimming the lights. Have you heard this one? He says that his brother finally looked over it and said, right, that's it, I'm tired of it now. The next car that comes by and refuses to dim the lights, I'm gonna refuse to dim mine. And he said, wait a minute, don't do that. Somebody has to have sense on this highway. Somebody has to have sense in the world. I mean, I was seriously, I think about it every time I 
flash my lights at somebody who hasn't dimmed theirs. Oh, did it again. The only thing that breaks the cycle of hate is love, as his life showed us. The only thing that helps with conflict is peace. And this is not a call for silence or submission or shoulder shrugging in the face of conflict and aggression and injustice. Jesus, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, didn't let the teachers of the law stone the woman. He didn't let the money, money lenders fill the courts. He didn't let um, the outcasts be ignored any longer. But he lost no peace as he did those things. This is just a reminder to us that violence, aggression, payback have no place in the kingdom of God. Neither does our ego, neither does our need to be right, neither does our pain. All of these things get in the way of our capacity to bring peace to a world that so desperately needs it. In John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do not be afraid as an instruction or an invitation given in the Bible something like 200 times. There is no place for fear in love and no place for fear in peace. And specifically, just to go back to the point I was making about fear of violence in this country, it's very, very rational fear. It really, truly is. But I'm perhaps, I think I've spoken to enough of you, even congregating in a church is something that a lot of people feel a lot of fear about in terms of being a target for violence. It makes complete sense. But fear is not what we are told to let ruin, rule our hearts. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The language here is very active. Peace is very active. Receive his perfect love that casts out all fear. When we let fear rule, we're very, very limited in our capacity to do the Jesus thing. So let the Prince of Peace be in charge. And whether this feels like the first or the thousandth time of getting to your end of, the self, of yourself and letting him be in charge, can I encourage you to do it again this morning? Um, let's sing a, a song about peace. Do you know a carol about peace, Ben? No, we'll just have another one then. Um, do stand. And actually, rather than sing, let's just spend a moment, maybe listening for a moment. When Jesus had risen from the dead, the first time he appeared to all his disciples together in John 20, he came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Peace be with you. It's quite interesting, isn't it? This big moment. Peace be with you. As they go out to do all that they're going to do. And then it says, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. 
So if you want to, in your um, heart and mind now as you stand there, imagine Jesus now saying both those things to you. Receive my spirit. He is here. He is for you. Peace be with you. Receive it as a gift, a great gift of Christmas.